This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word, that it is that which illuminates our thinking, that it is on the basis of your word that we come to understand who you are, who we are. We come to understand creation as it is, as you have made it. And we come to understand the impact that sin has in creation and sin has in our lives and the need for our redemption. And that redemption comes only on the basis of the payment of sin, the death payment of sin that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we're, once we're saved, though, this new life begins and that we have to be informed how we are to think and how we are to live in order to please you and to live in a way that is consistent and in harmony with creation as you have designed it. So as we continue our study related to what the Bible teaches about the family, we pray that you might challenge us. We might have the humility to recognize areas where we need to change and reevaluate our thinking, that we may be conformed to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning... As we've been studying the last few weeks in our study of Colossians, we've come to this last section dealing with uh, the roles and responsibilities of different members within the home, first the wife and the husband and children and parents, and I'm still on the topic of the role of children and parents within the family. Today, I want to wrap that up and just with some various concluding thoughts and observations related to parents, children, and the home. In our country, in our culture, and our culture is broader than just the United States. When I speak of culture, I mean the general belief system that dominates Western civilization, Western Europe, the United States, Canada, most of uh, probably Latin America as well, is a culture that has basically excluded God from having anything significant to say directly to us in terms of what we do behind closed doors. Usually that phrase is used in relation to sexual intimacy, but when I'm using it today, I mean what goes on in your family, in your family dynamic between uh, the husband, the wife, and the children as you focus on your Role as a family unit? Why do you exist as a family unit? And what is the role and responsibility of children and parents specifically? How do you, what should you be thinking? What should you be focusing on? What are your goals and objectives as a parent? Now, some of you may not be parents, but this is still something you need to be uh, thinking about. Whether you are a possible future parent or whether you have already had children and reared those children and maybe looking at the influence you might have as a grandparent uh, as your children have children. In our culture, we have seen a significant and dramatic shift in how we view the role and purpose of the family. The role and purpose of the family has taken a back seat to personal agendas in the last 50 years. A uh, hundred years ago, the family was a tight unit. There was mom and dad, and there were uh, children ranging usually from two or three to as many as 
uh, 16 or 17. That seems uh, odd today, and there are those today that uh, condemn having that many children, but that came out of a biblical worldview on the one hand, that people were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and that it was through the influence of your children uh, as you proclaimed the gospel, as you taught them and reared them on the basis of the word of God, that you could influence a culture as you trained your children biblically, and then they went out and uh, built their families. Uh, that is a just the opposite of a self-centered view. Today, people are more concerned with achieving their personal goals, whether it's success in business, education, uh, whatever it may be, whatever their personal agenda is, that takes the primary seat. This leads to the breakdown in marriage. It leads to breakdown in the family. Parents are uh, often, there are many reasons you can f- come up with, legitimate and illegitimate, to justify not being profoundly involved in the lives of your children. But the bottom line is that's the objective, and each one of us has to determine how we are going to achieve that objective because, as we see in this passage, that there is a reference at the end that we will be evaluated. This is referenced in Colossians 3.25, that there will be an evaluation uh, as a judgment. It's part of the judgment seat of Christ. There is an evaluation on everything we do in life, uh, and this is with reference to rewards and punishment, and that um, there will be that that evaluation in terms of our roles and responsibilities as as parents. So as Christians, we need to think about family from a biblical perspective. Just a couple of things I wanted to uh, point out from some research I did uh, the last few weeks on the understanding the deterioration of the family in our culture. In 2010... There were 5 million stay-at-home mothers in the U.S. That was a decline from 5.5 million stay-at-home moms in 2007. One reason many women choose to remain in the workforce when they start to have children is because of the recession and financial pressures. And financial pressures have been one of the ways in which the uh, world system has pressured women to conform to the ideals of the feminist agenda. I remember back in the late 60s and 70s as radical feminism was beginning to establish a foothold in uh, American culture, there was an emphasis on uh, the what was called the, uh, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, and uh, there was an emphasis on uh, trying to make this a part of the Constitution as, as an amendment. Some of you remember that. And that, was, that ultimately never came to pass. But there were m- numerous conservative, Bible-believing Christian women who re- took a profound stand against that. They were going to, uh, when they were married, they were going to have children, and they were going to stay at home. They understood that was the primary responsibility as, as a mother, is to be at home, not to have a job, not to have a career, so they could be there for the children, uh, because someone needs to be at home as a frame of reference for, uh, for the children. But then in the late 70s, we had a period not unlike today, where the nation went because of uh, because of its increased debt, we saw uh, double digit inflation. We saw interest rates on mortgage loans go up to 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 percent. Some of you remember those days. You saw all kinds of horrible things taking place, and because of that, not unlike today, there was a financial pressure where many women went had to go, in some cases they just for survival, they had to go against their, uh, their beliefs and, and work outside the home simply to survive and to pay the bills. Uh, that is one way, I think, in which uh, Satan has used the, the world system to attack the family. It's happening again in our, in our culture today, and we need to understand the dynamics there and to fight against that. When we look at these statistics that, and to, for example, as I initially stated in 2010, there were 5 million stay-at-home moms, that's a, nearly a 50% decrease 
from the approximately 10 million stay-at-home moms in 1969. Think about that. So that shows how uh, these things have changed. And along with this, the attitudes have changed so that even in the six, late 60s and 70s, you had a number of mothers who worked outside of the home. They didn't believe that they should be working outside the home. That was something that was imposed upon them. That has completely reversed itself now so that a uh, large majority of women who are mothers believe that it's better for them to work outside the home than to be in the home uh, with the children. Uh, children with uh, absent fathers, on the other deal, first dealing with mothers and now dealing with uh, fathers, children with absent fathers are reported to be the most vulnerable and problematic children in our society. They frequently have problems in school and at home due to behavioral issues, uh, educational uh, challenges. The number of families with absent fathers has increased significantly from a little more than half a million in 1971 to 1.6 million in 1996. And now it is probably much uh, greater, uh, greater than that. Another observation is that a white teenage girl from an advantaged background is five times more likely to become a teenage mother if she grows up in a single mother household with an absentee father than if she grows up in a household with both biological parents. So all of these indicate the, that, that there are studies after studies showing that as far as society is concerned, the ideal is two parents in the home and ultimately uh, both parents spending as much time as possible uh, with the children. Another uh, study indicates that the, in, uh, in the middle class, the whole concept of mothering has shifted and that now the, mother pref- the, the preference is to work outside the home where much of the formative years of a child's development occurs where they're being taken care of by someone other than the uh, biological uh, parent. A book and sort of a uh, a sociological analysis uh, group that has been uh, uh, frequently cited in different things recently is a book called Freakonomics, dealing with different aspects of society. And according to Freakonomics, the U.S. Census Bureau states that the share of children living in mother-only household has risen from 8% in 1960 to 23% in 2010. That is a radical shift. Uh, Freakonomics is a longstanding interest in the role parents play in their lives of their children, and they say that uh, the research indicates that they've studied that a father's involvement with, with his children is linked to all manner of beneficial outcomes from better uh, academic performance, uh, improved social and emotional stability, and lower incidences of delinquency and other problem behaviors. Uh, daughters generally require a level of quality interaction with a father figure, But sons benefit from, listen to this, sheer quantity of time. It's not just, don't, not just saying, well, quality is better than quantity. For sons, it's quantity that, that dads need to spend with their, uh, with their sons. Uh, they respond, sons respond simply to having a father around the house. The, just the presence, I saw this as a teacher, this is just anecdotal. Evidence, but when I was first out of uh, university for two years, I taught down in Channel View, lovely part of town. No offense to those who live in Channel View, um, but I didn't have the greatest experience. I was in charge of their in-school suspension program. <laughs> I met all the little lovelies down there, and uh, so, and th- that was a money thing as well because uh, in the state of Texas, schools get money from the state based on their attendance. So if you suspend your little delinquents and send them home, uh, you don't get money for that kid that day. So it's better to suspend them and put them in a sort of a jail isolation environment for um, a few days, and then you still get your money. 
And so uh, that made it worthwhile to even hire a teacher to do that. So that's what I did. I was sort of the the uh, drill instructor, a jail master, whatever you wanted to call it, for all the lovelies. And I, we would see, you, and it was a junior high, junior senior high combination. And what I observed over the years is you would have kids that would be good kids, not behavioral problems. And a lot of times, as as the kids grow up and they reach those adolescent years, then all of a sudden, uh, mom would they would decide, okay, the kids are grown, they're 12, 13, 14 years old, so mom's going to go back to work or go to work so that she can start saving money maybe for college or whatever just to help the family get by. And as soon as the mother would not no longer be at home, then the kids would start really acting up. And you would see a huge behavioral shift because mom's not at home, so the principal can't get a hold of her. Or after school, they can go do whatever they want to with their little delinquent friends. And, uh, and mom's not going to find out because she's not home. Just the, just the, even though the mother may not be physically present with the child, may just, just her presence at home, the fact that she's easily reachable has an impact on the behavior of the child. And I think the same thing is is true in terms of of uh, of a father. Uh, this study by Freakonomics also notes that uh, a child growing up uh, with only a uh, with a with a father who lives outside of the home, not with the child, uh, and spends time uh, with them uh, without living there, also leads to an increase in delinquent behavior. They point out that for both young men and women, uh, delinquent behavior decreases if their mothers simply spent time uh, doing things with them, especially with the daughters, during adolescence. So it comes down to time, parents, spending time with your kids, developing that relationship and adding to it that you're not building a relationship that's a friendship as a parent, you're not a, you're not a friend. You are a parent. Your job is to prepare your children to be able to function independently of you by the time they are 18 years of age. They need to be able to handle everything from balancing a checkbook to being able to budget their own money to being able to make important decisions in life uh, without you being there. Now, we all know that they're going to stumble a few times, so it's good to be there to try to pick them up a little bit as they do. But our the job of parents is to train children to be able to fully function in every area of life uh, when they leave the home. So your job as a parent is to train children, and this is clearly an emphasis in the Scripture. When we look at the passage in Colossians uh, 3, 20 and 21, uh, it reads, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing uh, to the Lord. The word there that is translated well-pleasing is the Greek word euaristos, uh, which simply means doing that which bring, gives, uh, which is acceptable. It's not the idea of bringing pleasure, but it's the idea of doing that which is acceptable or that which is correct. Uh, it's used in a couple of other places in the Scripture. For example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, as the, if you remember that study from our uh, Acts series on Tuesday nights, that's when the disciples come together and there's a complaint from the uh, Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek-based Jews that are living in Jerusalem, the widows, that they were somehow being overlooked in the distribution of financial aid within the church. And so uh, it's just because the church has multiplied so greatly that the apostles can't handle everything themselves, so it's time to appoint a second level of leadership in order to oversee uh, the activities and the distribution of the uh, of the financial aid. And so the 12, that is uh, the disciples minus... minus uh, Judas, of course, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So they've looked at the situation, they've evaluated the problem, and they said this isn't something that is, it's translated desirable, it's not something that is pleasing. In other words, it's an idiom for this isn't the right thing to do because it's not the best 
use of our time. So the term pleasing is often used as a synonym for doing the right thing uh, in light of the situation. Jesus used it that way in John 8:29 when he is speaking of the Father he said he who sent me that is the Father he who sent me is with me see what we see in that passage is Jesus views the Father as being a separate person not the God, God is still a triunity he is a unity in one but there's one essence three persons uh, and the Father sent the Son and Jesus says, the Father has not left me alone. He's not abandoned me, in other words, for I always do those things that please him. So you see, pleasing the Father is tantamount to doing the right thing. He always did the right thing. Now, the word that is used often in the scripture for doing that which is right or that which conforms to the character of God is the Greek word dikaios, which means righteous righteousness or sometimes justice and this is a, the the word that is used in um, Ephesians in Ephesians chapter uh, 6 when it's talking about children uh, verse 1 says children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right that's the Greek word dikaios this is that which is uh, just or right or conforms to the character of God. So in Colossians, it usually uses the word that which is acceptable or pleasing to God. That's just an idiom for saying this is doing that which is right, that which is just. Now it's important that that word that we understand the concept of righteousness here. The New Testament use of terminology is always based on its precedent in the Old Testament. Most of the writers of the New Testament, are all, excuse me, all the writers of the New Testament are Jewish. Their frame of reference was the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the corresponding word for uh, righteousness in Hebrew was tzedakah. And this is a very important word in the Old Testament, and it's an important word in Judaism in the Old Testament, it, as well as in the New Testament, it often refers to the righteous character of God, that is, his absolute perfection, that he is absolute uh, righteousness, he is absolute justice, he is the definition of that which is right. And so when we look at this concept of righteousness, it shows up in a family passage back in Deuteronomy. So let's go back into the Old Testament and look at Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is a actually a sermon, as it was originally given, by Moses. This is Moses' last word to the Jewish people before he uh, left them and went to be with the Lord up on Mount Nebo. And so in, in Deuteronomy, there is a rehearsal and a reminder of all that God has done to provide for the Jewish people, to protect them in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, uh, watching over them and providing for them in the wilderness. And then it is a reminder to them that, that this new generation that is going to go into the promised land needs to be obedient to God so that they will not suffer the divine discipline that their parents' generation suffered, which is why they had to spend 40 years in the, in the wilderness. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 4, a section begins in Deuteronomy, and I just want to point a couple of things out there so we see the context. Moses introduces this part of his message by saying, Now, O Israel, listen. And as I pointed out before, this word listen doesn't mean just to have your ears stimulated by auditory vibrations. It means to obey, to listen, to understand, and to put into practice something that they are being told. And Deuteronomy 4.1, uh, Moses says, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments. These are different words that are used to describe the, uh, the mandates, the legal uh, precepts of the, of the Mosaic law. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live. What is the purpose of obedience to the laws? That you may live. He's not talking about life eternal here. He is talking about the quality of their life once they go into the promised land. 
God has promised that if they were obedient, then God would bless them and they would enjoy prosperity in the land. But if they were disobedient, then God would bring discipline and judgment, military conquest, economic collapse uh, upon the nation. So he says if you want prosperity, if you want blessing, then observe uh, all of the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. And he says, uh, then he goes on and gives additional instructions, but I want you to skip down to verse uh, 6. Skip down to verse 6, and, and <clears throat> Moses says, Therefore be careful to, careful to observe them, that is, the statutes and the judgments, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. That's the nations, the Gentiles. This is their testimony to the world. Be careful to observe them. They, uh, this will show the, your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who will all hear all of these statutes. And, and what's the response of the Gentiles then to hearing the Mosaic law? I'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. As they observe the prosperity and the stability of, of the nation Israel, then the response of the other nations is, well, there's no other nation that is wise and understanding and stable and pro- prosperous as this nation. They would go on to say, for what great nation is this that is God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? So you have this whole way of life that is outlined by the Mosaic law. And then at the end of this uh, section, Moses says, only take heed to yourselves. In other words, pay attention to this. Be diligent in the application of this. Take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest uh, lest they depart from your heart, that is, your thinking, all the days of your life. You saw all the wonderful miracles that God provided for you in sustaining you in the wilderness. Don't forget it. Let that influence your behavior. And then he says, um, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. So the context here is talking about how to have life. And how you have life is to take the framework of thinking, the whole body of God's revelation through the law and how to experience real life, and to teach it to your children and your grandchildren. There was this heavy emphasis throughout history in among the Jewish people on education. Teaching again and again and again is emphasized in and a lot of times what you will hear from uh, secular professors in history uh, that, well, Moses, in fact, in the 19th century, this was uh, taught as fact. Now it's uh, been disputed and proven wrong. Uh, they taught that, well, Moses couldn't have written this because at that time in history, the people, really, people didn't know how to read. Uh, very few people knew how to write. Uh, this wasn't really written down for uh, several centuries later. But the reality is because all through the law of Moses, there's this emphasis on teaching and education. The Jewish tradition is that in among the Jews, as far back as the time of Moses, there was a 100% literacy rate. Why? Because you had to know the word of God. God spoke to you and it was written down and you had to know it. And throughout the generations, the Jewish people have always uh, valued education more than anyone else, and it's due to the influence of the Mosaic Law. Now, I want you to just turn the page, a couple of pages, to the sixth chapter, and here we see Moses explaining in more detail how that teaching to your children and your grandchildren was to work itself out. In chapter 6, he is... uh, he began saying, now this is the commandment, these are the statutes and the judgments. So there we have three different words related to the law, commandments, statutes, and judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. Once again, the emphasis on instruction. That is one of the things that distinguishes us a little bit from some other churches is that we don't believe in just having a sort of a uh, exhortational homilies on a Sunday morning or any other time. We put our emphasis on really explaining, teaching, 
uh, the scriptures verse by verse, going through each book of the Bible so that you can really understand what has been written for our benefit. Uh, the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you cross over and possess. What, why are you to do this? That you may fear the Lord your God. That's the beginning of wisdom according to Proverbs, according to the Psalms. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, recognizing God oversees everything in our life, and ultimately we are accountable to him for all of the decisions of life. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son, your grandson. Now, there's the family element that has to be passed on. The family is the responsible element for educating the next generation. Parents, you cannot expect the school to do the job for you. The, the school district, schools today especially, do, some do a great job, some don't do such a great job, depending on where you are and what your local school is. But that's merely an adjunct to your responsibility as a parent. Same thing with Sunday school. We try to provide materials that kids can take home in the hopes that parents will review the lessons uh, with your children and your grandchildren so that those lessons are brought home to those kids and they can remember them. The family is the training unit in the Scripture, not the local church, not the government, uh, not the school district, but the family, that's the primary place where education needs to, needs to take place. And, and just as an, uh, another observation that I've, I've made as a teacher and others have made as a teacher, when you as a parent demonstrate your value of education uh, and exhibit that before your children and your grandchildren, it influences them. There needs to be a positive respect for education in the home by the parents. They're not just what they say, but what they do, so that this is picked up by the children from a very early age. Now, skipping down a couple of verses to verse uh, 3, Moses says, Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that is the law, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God the God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the key to prosperity is to learning how God thinks and passing that on from one generation to the next. Hear, O Israel, verse 4. This is a central verse in modern, uh, modern Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, it's usually translated the Lord is one. However, recent studies on the use of the word one has indicated that this is not a the, the concept of a unitary uh, unitarian sort of God, a singularity, but it's talking about a unity. It's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, when uh, Moses writes, uh, "Man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. The two shall be one." That is a unity, not a singularity, but a oneness in unity. And this is uh, what is seen here in the context here. Even the translators of the uh, Jewish Tanakh have recognized this, that the context here is not talking about uh, the God as a singularity, but that the Lord of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is to be worshipped in exclusion from all uh, idols and all other gods. And so this is a chapter, that this is a verse that's saying, not that the Lord is one, but the Lord alone. No, there are no other gods but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, of course, that's what's emphasized in the first, uh, first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. So the Lord our God, the Lord alone, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Literally in the Hebrew, there's a uh, sort of a strange idiom there for strength, and it really means with everything that you've got, so that your relationship with God is the most important element of your life. And Moses goes on to say, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart that is in your thinking. Now, what do you do with that? And you shall teach them diligently to your children. So first of all, parents, your responsibility is to make sure that the most dynamic, significant aspect of your life 
is your relationship with God and your emphasis on learning and applying the Word of God, being in church Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night, as you can be in Bible class as much as you can, where this is exhibited and you are an example uh, to your children and just by watching you that you make this a priority. And from your relationship with the Lord and the strength of that relationship with the Lord, then you influence your children. This last week, I, a friend of mine made a compliment, gave me a nice compliment, gave my parents a nice compliment, and uh, commented to me that, uh, well, you've just been positive to the word all of your life. And I said, well, that's because my mother threatened me. Some of you understand that. I mean, my mother would not accept anything less than that. See, some of you as parents are too too weeny on that. You're just too wimpy on that. You, you, just, you want your four-, five-, six-year-old kids to start making up their minds spiritually. When they're 35 or 40, let them make up their minds spiritually. When they are between the ages of zero and 30, you don't put up with anything less than 100% positive volition, and you can only start that from day one. By the time your child is speaking, his first 10 or 12 sentences need to be complete verses that you have taught them from the Bible. That is the focal point. That's your job as a trainer and a teacher. Anything less is a compromise with the world. My mother would put up with nothing less. She put the fear of God into me, that's for sure. So as a parent, your job is to teach them diligently. Now, this is a word that means that you make this a high priority. What you like to do in life once you have children is not important until your children are out of the home. What is important is how you train that child to grow because it's your job to train them. Nobody else is going to do it. It's not going to happen. They have a, as we studied last week, that foolishness because of the sin nature is bound up in the heart of a child. If you don't do your job well, they're going to follow the path of least resistance, which is to let their sin nature, their arrogance, their self-absorption, their self-indulgence dominate their life. Your job as a parent is to teach them to discipline, self-discipline and to train them on the basis of the Word of God to control that. So your job is to make that your highest priority. You shall teach them diligently to your children. How do you do that? By taking them to church on Sunday morning and maybe during the middle of the week? No, it is a 24-7 responsibility. It happens in the course of life as you spend time with your children. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you're watching television, uh, you stop, the, you hit the DVR pause switch and you say, now listen to what was just taught in that show. That's a, that's a mentality that we don't accept. You're teaching them to think critically. When you're sitting around the table after dinner, you talk, what did you do during the day? What happened at school? You hear about things that happened, uh, something positive, then you affirm that on the basis of the Word of God, something negative, then you help your child learn how to think or critique that on the basis of what the Scripture says. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, uh, our sixth grade teacher started reading from a science book, and it was uh, the story of the universe. And it starts off with the, uh, uh, at some point it came to the sun exploding, and the earth came out of the sun, or the planets came out of the sun. It was basic ev evolutionary development uh, of the universe. And I thought, boy, that's pretty interesting. And I came home and I told my mother, and boy, did I get sat down, and we went through Genesis 1, uh, right away that day, there was correction. That's the responsibility of the parent is to keep those pagan ideas from taking root in the thinking of your, uh, of your children. And so, uh, <clears throat> scripture goes on, you, uh, teach them diligently to your children, talking to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you're going out and you're going shopping, you're going out and you're driving around, you're going out on vacation somewhere, you use every opportunity as you're just talking to your kids and finding out what's going on and learning about what they like and they don't like and what comments they make to, to look at 
teaching opportunities. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're giving a lecture to them or you're teaching them every single instant because that's going to uh, have one result. But you start, especially if you start this when they're young, you're just doing it as a part of life to, to train uh, your children to uh, how they are to understand, evaluate, and focus on the issues uh, the issues of life. When you, you talk with them, it's when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, I want you to think a minute. I know it's early on a Sunday morning, but I want you to think a minute. What activities do you do in life that aren't involved in sitting in your house, walking by the way, when you're lying down, or when you rise up? See, that covers everything, 24-7. Your job as a parent is to train your children how to think biblically, divine viewpoint, throughout everything in their life. Furthermore, this becomes a, an external reality. Uh, verse 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, in Jewish tradition, they took this uh, l- very literally, and they would take little uh, leather boxes, and they would put inside of them a small copy of the scroll. Usually what's written on the scroll is this passage, and they would wrap this on the back of their hands and on their foreheads, and these were called phylacteries. And this is something you will see uh, Orthodox Jew, Jews wear when they are in, in worship in synagogue. And it was common at the time uh, when uh, Jesus was on the earth as well. But that was a superficial, hyper-literal interpretation. The idea that is really that, that this becomes part of what you do. It's a sign on your hand, what you do and produce with your hands. And frontlets between your eyes, that's your brain. It becomes, it dominates your thinking as a parent. And then verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The, the Hebrew word for door, doorpost is, is uh, the singular is mezuzah. The plural is mezuzot. And if you ever go to a Jewish home, you will notice that there is a small wooden thing. They're decorated all kinds of different ways today that's nailed on the doorpost uh, of the house. And inside of it is a little copy of the scroll of this passage. And that's called the mezuzah. And when they move into a house, they will have a rabbi come and dedicate the house. And then they will nail the mezuzah up on the doorpost. This is a, 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 an interpretation of this that doesn't pick up on the thrust of it, but just on the external aspect of it. Uh, the significance here is that writing it on the doorpost of your house and on your gates indicates that everything within the uh, uh, boundaries of your home is going to be influenced by the word of God. So there's this understanding here that if you're going to rear the next generation and train them so that they value what you value is that this it takes up 120% of your time as a parent. That's your job as a parent is to train the next generation. Now, one last verse I'm going to go to as we uh, close out this study. I want you to turn back to the New Testament to Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. This is a verse that is describing the growth of the Lord Jesus Christ as an infant. Remember, Jesus Christ in his deity was eternal. There never was a time when he did not exist. Uh, He always existed as the second person of the Trinity. Eternality is an aspect of deity. He didn't begin at some point in eternity past. He always existed, just as God the Father and the Holy Spirit exist. And he entered into human history by not giving up his deity, but by adding humanity, a full human nature, but without sin, to his deity. And he was born through a normal human process, uh, it was a virgin birth, but the, virgin conception rather, but the birth involved normal procedures, and then he grows up as a, as a human being. This is summarized in Acts 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So you have four categories there. Wisdom relates to his intellectual development. Stature relates to his physical growth and development. And then his favor with God relates to his spiritual growth, and his favor with men relates to his uh, social development uh, as he matured and grew up. 
regarding the first area, Jesus increased in wisdom, we have to understand that when children are born, they do not know right from wrong. They do not know good manners. They do not know how to focus on the needs of others. They are self-centered. Uh, everything is about them. They are ignorant. They do not know anything. Uh, they do not know how to behave. They do not know how to face uh, any issues of life. They do not know how to make decisions. They don't have any frame of reference for this. It is your job as a parent to train them, to teach them right from wrong, to teach them to not be self-centered, to train them, to discipline them so that they, they learn. Your job as a parent is to teach and to train them and to educate them. So children are born without wisdom, and they need to gain wisdom and knowledge as they grow. Second, they lack stature. That is, they are helpless physically. They can't do much, but they need to grow physically. That involves good nourishment, uh, healthy diet, and then as they grow, it involves uh, developing physically in terms of exercise and activity. So uh, it also involves protection of parents so that parents protect them from anything that threatens them. Uh, third, in terms of favor with God, we know that we are born spiritually dead without a relationship with God, uh, and so children do not have that relationship with God, and the only way to grow in favor with God is to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So your job as a parent is to begin to communicate the gospel to them as early as you can. It doesn't have to be a sit-down where you talk to them, but just as you have conversations, read them Bible stories uh, from the very day that they're born so that they come to understand this, and over a period of time, uh, they will come to a God consciousness, an awareness of God, and they will uh, respond. And as they get a little older, two and a half, three, four, five, six, you as a parent should be the one who... Uh, explains the gospel to your child so that they can respond. Uh, my parents did that to me. I think it was Mother's Day of 1959. It was the first day that Baraka Church was at 2815 Sage Road, and because we only lived in that house for two more weeks, so I think that was the day. It was a perfect occasion for the pastor to talk about uh, the responsibility of parents, and after lunch that day, they sat me down and explained the gospel to me, and that's when I trusted in Christ as Savior. I was about six and a half years old. I know of one case where a friend of mine who was a uh, Bible teacher for Child Evangelism Fellowship would take her uh, uh, daughter, who was about two to two and a half at the time, with her and drag her along every day after after school. She would go and teach a five, uh, you know an after school Child Evangelism Fellowship class, and and she taught two or three a week. And her uh, her little girl was always with her. And at the end of these child evangelism fellowship classes, there would always be sort of a closing invitation while the kids had their heads bowed that if any of them wanted to trust in Jesus, that they just would pray to God to tell him that they believe Jesus died for their sins. And one day when she got back in the car and she was driving home, her two-and-a-half-year-old girl said, Mommy, I want to believe in Jesus. It just took her completely by surprise because she was she was teaching all those other kids, but there was her little girl there who was hearing all of this, and she wanted to be like the other boys and girls, and she wanted to believe in Jesus too so that she could go to heaven. So you never know how early is... To, I don't think there's such a thing as too early. And this is the responsibility of the parents to communicate this so that they grow in favor with God and then men, teaching them how to behave and talk and communicate with others, teaching them good manners, respect for adults, respect for prop, uh, uh, private property, and all of this is the responsibility of the parents. And it's the responsibility of both parents, but as we see in our passage in Ephesians, it is primarily the responsibility of the father. In verse 4, uh, you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. That means don't be tyrannical in the exercise of your authority, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is addressed to fathers. I think primarily this is addressed to male, although the word pateris in the plural often is used of parents, 
I think that the emphasis here is primarily on the male leadership, but it does involve both parents. But the, nothing is more significant in the life of your child, if you are a father, than your emphasis on the spiritual life. Your, your example comes across very clearly. I remember in my first church, uh, a lady came up to me. I'd been there for maybe a year or so, and she came up to me, and she told me a story about her four-year-old didn't want to come to church that morning and said, why? Now, if you look around here, you'll see that we have more women than men, which is typical in most churches. And her little boy said, well, because the, the father never came to church. She said, well, church is for women. I don't, I'm a boy. I don't need to go to church, um, so I'm not, I don't want to go. Men stay home. Four years old, he had already learned a major lesson, that as a man, you're not interested in God. So, men, you have a tremendous influence on the spiritual life of your children and on your grandchildren. It is the home that God has designed as the training ground for the next generation, and it's our responsibility as Christians and as parents to emphasize the the importance of the home and the important role of parents with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we've had to study through the roles and responsibilities of members in the family. And, Father, we know that there are tremendous pressures, pressures uh, economically, pressures uh, morally, pressures spiritually upon families today, and that we have seen the family in this nation lose its value, lose its direction, and decrease in its significance as parents focus more upon their own needs and desires than that of their children and the consequent uh, negative results of that. Father, we pray for this nation, for our families, that there might be a reversal of priority. We pray for pastors who would have the courage to proclaim the truth of this and to challenge parents to uh, step up and take full responsibility as Christian parents for the training within the home. And, Father, we pray that, that, that this would have a, a transformative effect upon this nation, for it's only the truth of your word and the redemptive aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there can be any real hope for a future uh, of blessing and security and stability within a nation. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who's not sure if they're going to go to heaven if they die, not sure what their eternal destiny would be, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that that you can have eternal life and that this is a free gift, the Scripture says, that it's not by works of righteousness but by your mercy you saved us, Uh, that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works lest any man should boast. And the issue is do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? And by believing in him, Scripture promises, you have eternal life. It's not based on you. It's based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.